morning. Uh, Zach is on vacation, a well-deserved vacation. Back, he'll be back tomorrow evening, is that right? Gotcha. Um, And so he asked me to fill in, and originally, uh, we were going through our core values series, and we were, um, this week, kingdom-focused stewardship was up, and he asked me to do that, and so I was kind of thinking about that, and then he asked me not to do that. Um, He asked me to do something that I just wanted to make up. Uh, So that's cool. I think if I taught that, I'd probably tell you guys to spend more money on coffee. Um, But so today, uh, we're going to be talking about something that I've been thinking about kicking around uh, for a little bit. Um, I have two sons, and one of them, more so than the other one, um, bravery is something that... um, we tell him he needs to be, and when he is, uh, he's real excited, and he tells us, hey, I was brave, I was brave. And it's really silly things that he needs this bravery for. Um, it's going down the stairs without help from mom or dad. Um, and so we tell him he needs to be brave. Um, sometimes it's going to his room to get a diaper or a toy or a blanket or whatever, and um, he thinks it's scary in there. I don't know where they learned that because the room is not scary. But, um, you know, we tell him to be brave. And um, it's, in my mind, just ridiculous. Like, come on, you're two and a half. You shouldn't be scared of anything. Go get your toy. Go get your blanket. Um, But backing up from that idea, I started thinking, what are the things that I maybe fear in my life that are silly? What are the things that I am hesitant to do, the things that I'm fearful of happening in my life when I don't need to be fearful? And what are the things that God tells me? Just be brave, Spencer. Just be brave. Go get a diaper. Be brave. And um, so I started thinking about this, and there's... I wouldn't describe myself as a fearful person, but there are constructs and structures in my life that are definitely based on fear. Like when there's money in the bank, I'm not scared. That's because there's money in the bank. If there was no money in the bank, then I would be a little scared. And it shows me that there's fear, uh, the potential of fear in my life. And so I started thinking not just, um, you know, my bank account, you know, inside the walls of my house, but what about my community? What about the things that are going on outside of, um, yeah, my four walls? And um, have you guys heard the term um, post-Christian? We're living like in a post-Christian age. Have you guys heard that? It's kind of the new thing that people are talking about. Um, and what that's referring to, so we're going to, this is a really long, boring intro to this, I'm sorry, but We'll get back to the verse, and we'll get um, this all come around, I promise. But um, in 380 AD, um, Christianity was deemed the religion of the state. And then by the time uh, 392, 400, it was deemed illegal not to be a Christian. And so as 
the centuries progressed and um, Christianity kind of remained the center of Western culture and historians refer to these centuries as Christendom and all the way up until like the 1950s, if you wanted to be a successful businessman in America, you would go to First Methodist or First Baptist because, you know, that shows that you're a trustworthy person. Your business would have um, customers, clients, because, hey, you go to church, um, we can trust you. And all of Western culture was kind of built around these Judeo-Christian values, um, and they're are good things that come with that, and there are bad things that come with that. You know, the hearts of man didn't automatically become God-fearing and um, Christian in every way, but they learned to make money off of the church. They learned to, um, yeah, push themselves and um, have self-success because of, quote-unquote, Christianity. Um, yeah, if... You didn't attend church regularly on Sunday, even uh, early 1900s to mid-1900s in America. Um, that was, um, you'd have a bad reputation, you know? People would be worried about whether you're becoming heathen or pagan. And so all this to say, we're, we're seeing a shift in our culture, and those uh, Judeo-Christian values are not um, the center of our culture anymore, and we're seeing them start to be moved to the side, starting to be marginalized. And um, on the surface, that sounds like a really bad thing. Like, oh no, we're losing our values. But the truth is, when the church is marginalized, it thrives. When you look at the early church and they were being persecuted, they were being fed to lions and tossed before gladiators, the church was just on fire. I mean, people were coming to God by the thousands and um, Christians had this reputation among the people of being strange, but they were loving, they were kind, they were taking care of the poor, they were taking care of themselves like each other, they were selling things and um, giving that money to the poor. And when Christianity moved to the center and became the, um, yeah, what was mandated of like everybody's going to be Christian, uh, the believers, the church, became slow and they became stagnant and they became just soggy and they took the duties that had been commissioned to the people of God and kind of shifted those to the paid staff of the church. Oh, if you're a pastor, you'll be going and praying for the sick and the poor. If you're a missionary, you know, we'll support you to go out and bring the gospel to the nations. And, you know, Christianity became a one-day-a-week, Sunday-morning thing, and Jesus was king for those three hours on Sunday morning. But he wasn't really around during the rest of the time. When the church was marginalized, the front line of evangelism, that was the businessmen, the tradesmen, the uh, students at the schools, the mothers that got together and took care of their kids. And when that shifted to the paid staff, 
you know, those people that were on the front lines of evangelism, responsibility was given to the pastors. I'm trying to figure out this mic. I remember when the missionary spoke, it was cutting in and out like this. We'll see if I can figure it out. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, the front line of evangelism dropped from the people of God to the pastors of the churches. And this isn't scriptural. It's not godly. This is how we create a celebrity culture. We have pastors that are like, oh, you've been to so-and-so's church? And I admit, I have a list of pastors. If I go to Dallas, I'm going to this church. If I go to Portland, I'm going to this church because these pastors, they know what's up. They know how uh, the Bible really should be interpreted. And we just built this celebrity church culture, this consumer church culture, where we look at churches based on you know, what version of the Bible do they use? What uh, is the status of their child care? You know, do they have really awesome child care? How are their youth groups? Um, do they really get involved in the community? And we have this buffet of churches that we can just uh, choose any church that we want to go be a part of, when really that wasn't a thing before Western culture uh, turned it into a thing. Um, the movement that started busting cracks into Christendom, uh, we can point back to the Enlightenment, where the great thinkers of the day said, um, you know, there's nothing supernatural out there. If we can't hear it, if we can't see it, if we can't feel it, if we can't taste it, it doesn't exist. And so they kind of wiped the slate clean and said, uh, any ailments or problems that humanity faces, humanity can solve. And so it kind of put us on this trajectory of uh, puffing ourselves up and saying, you know, we can take care of not only ourselves, but the planet and the ozone layer and all these things. And we took our eyes off of something bigger than ourselves. And there was this massive shift in society because the church was no longer the moral compass of the people. We started to decide for ourselves what was right and what was wrong. And as that was happening, the church um, left its post as guardian of morality and became more of uh, a humanitarian institution um, a place that you would go and get a lot of self-help, um, a place that did good for the poor and for other countries, um, and it became more of a social club. And it wasn't a place, it was no longer a place, that people came and sat in the glory of their creator, of the Ancient of Days, of the Son of God, to worship him, but it became a place that we went um, just to become better versions of ourselves. And so I think, as this period of history, um, Christendom, seems to be coming to a close in our nation, I think we all agree that there's, uh, over the last 50, 60 years, we've seen a pretty progressive, um, pretty quick shift in what our nation values. Um, I think that as we enter into this post-Christian era, or whatever you want to call it, I think that's good for us. 
I think it gets us off the couch. It's going to be a struggle, but it's going to be a time that the church gets pushed back into the margins, and we um, get to see it thrive again. But there's going to be a lot of pushback to this. Um, this was a few years ago, but um, I don't know if you guys know who Truett and Dan Cathy are, father and son. Um, they're the guys behind Chick-fil-A. And um, if we don't have Chick-fil-A up here, which is awful. If you guys ever get the chance to try one of their chicken sandwiches, do, because it is amazing. Uh, I think the nearest one is in Moscow. We could probably make it back before the Super Bowl if we hurry. But um, these guys came out and just, I think they were asked in an interview what their views on marriage and family were, and they said that they adhere to the biblical understanding of what a family is and what a marriage is, and um, they received huge backlash for this. Mayors of cities were saying that, you know, we're going to deny permits for Chick-fil-A if they want to put a store here, and um, I think Boston and San Francisco said there's not going to be a Chick-fil-A within 40 miles of our city, and this is all just because of the personal beliefs of the founders. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian to work at Chick-fil-A. Uh, you can't be fired for being anything but heterosexual. I mean, they're very, um, their business practices are very ethical and just very kind. But the world seemed to push against them just because of their personal beliefs. And we saw this on the big stage of a giant corporation, but we're gonna start seeing that more and more in our communities because of our own personal beliefs. And people in the church are freaking out because the cultural climate is changing. The giant glacier that was uh, Christendom is melting so fast and people are freaking out, but God isn't freaking out. You know, the, I think the people see that the work that was laid out for pastors and missionaries is coming down the chute at their own plate, and there's a little bit of fear there. There's a little bit of, you know, maybe you're not fearful as in like, oh, no, this is a terrible thing, but I don't know what to do with that. Maybe this is unknown territory for us because we've been operating as Christians in a place of favor for so long. You know, we weren't the minority, and now we're moving from favor to foolishness, uh, moving from a place of honor to a place of um, being despised. And the temptation that comes with that is to maybe withdraw uh, from culture and kind of privatize our faith, privatize our relationship with Jesus, um, where it's not something that Jesus is the king of your life, but, you know, he is who I worship on Sundays. Um, you don't engage in conversa conversation with uh, non-believers because you're afraid of what they might think of you. Maybe that person is your boss. Maybe that person, there's nowhere to set this, um, is a family member. Is that bad to put water on top of a speaker? I'll put it on the ground. Um, 
But for me, it's not so much a fear of thinking it's a terrible thing, but it's more of an unknown. You know, um, I own my own business and I interact with a lot of people in the community. And what does being a Christian look like for me? And so just kind of this idea of being brave, this idea of not hiding Jesus from the people that I interact with. Um, this doesn't mean I have to carry a cardboard sign that says the end is near, but you know, I shouldn't be afraid of showing my beliefs, wearing my um, faith on my sleeve. Bravery is when there is fear, but you step into that concern, you step into that anxiety with the knowledge that there's something more important and bigger than the fear itself. And in our case, Paul's telling Timothy that he has been given a spirit of power, of love, and sound judgment. Sarah read Second uh, Timothy one seven, and I'm going to start in verse six. Therefore, this is Paul talking to Timothy. I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power love, and sound judgment. So Paul's writing to Timothy, who is planning a church in Ephesus. Um, if you guys read the book of Acts, uh, Paul went to Ephesus and started spreading the gospel around, and the businessmen of Ephesus didn't like that uh, people were becoming Christians and they were stopping uh, the purchasing of idols and um, these little carved images of their deities. And so they started a riot against Paul. And um, the stadium there was full of people chanting against Paul, um, tens of thousands of people yelling, uh, great, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Um, and that place really hasn't changed since Timothy's planting a church there. It wasn't the uh, beacon of morality. They still loved their uh, little demon gods. They probably didn't have a Chick-fil-A. They um, were pretty hostile to uh, Christianity. But that's where Timothy is planting. And Paul starts this letter to Timothy, reminding him of the faith that he has in him. He tells Timothy to rekindle the gift. We are not given a spirit of fear. And the spirit that we have is of power. And the spirit that Paul's talking about uh, seems to be pointing directly to the Holy Spirit. That this is God himself that has been given to his children, his believers. And Paul's telling Timothy that the people of God, the church, should never be characterized by fear. They should never be people that are known for their anxiety or their worry. But we should be a people that stand in the face of adversity, that are brave when um, 
challenges, hard times, hardships come to them. Going back to my son, you know, he's scared to go into his room, and all he has to do is turn on the light or open the closet door, and those fears disappear. I think for me, the fears that I might have, you know, if I'm meditating on God's word, if I'm receptive to that spirit, those fears will disappear. Because in my own life, I, I feel like I've been experiencing this place of comfort for a while, and not comfort like lazy boy comfort or nice mattress comfort, but like more of a complacency of, you know, my Jesus journey is going pretty good, life's going pretty good, why rock the boat? Why change any of this up? Because it's pretty nice right now. And God has been faithful to bring a few different topics um, into uh, my mind and my heart. This week at our community group, we got into some good discussion about um, you know, false gospels and heresies, and um, it just got me excited about thinking about these things again. And so I have a few books on my shelf that I hope to crack into and really stir these things up. But the spirit that God has given us uh, is a spirit of power. Uh, dunamis is the Greek word. Um, that's where we get our word dynamite. And so when you think of dynamite, um, powerful, explosive, dramatic, does that describe you? Does that describe your interaction, your reliance on the spirit? Does that describe the way the spirit works through you? Explosive, powerful, dramatic, supernatural power. I can't say that describes me a lot of the time. And I don't necessarily mean, um, you know, do you have to have an explosive personality? That's probably not always a good thing to have. But when you rely on that spirit, when you see God working in you, is it surprising to you? Does it catch you off guard? You know, when, um, when I still am into this, I was really into uh, fireworks when I was in high school. We'd go down to the reservation, and then they sell you all the nice stuff that they don't have on the menu, and um, then you dismantle it and build your own fireworks. And, you know, none of this came close to dynamite. But when those, I was going to say bombs, not bombs, uh, fireworks went off, um, like your heart would stop, like you felt the pressure. Um, sometimes authorities were called because it was so loud. Um, dynamite is way more than that. Is that my faith? Is that my bravery? Do I have the confidence that um, is supernaturally more powerful than anything I could muster up? The spirit that we have doesn't necessarily get rid of the fear in our lives, but it raises us above that fear, showing us that the spirit of God is so much stronger, so much bigger, so much badder than anything that is out there. I mean, it could just manhandle 
any problem, any fear, any anxiety that your heart may be experiencing. I'm totally going to botch this, but uh, Zach refers to it a lot. When in Narnia, uh, someone is describing Aslan, the lion, who's a picture of Christ, and um, you know, they asked, is Aslan safe? Because he's a lion. And the response was, no, Aslan is not safe, but he is good. You know, our God is not safe, but he is good. He is not predictable, but he is faithful. And so when we rely on that spirit, when those times of fear come into our lives, do we experience that supernatural power? Paul also tells Timothy that the spirit that we have been given is one of love. Um, The word there is agape, an unconditional love. And um, a lot of people think that this word um, was made up for the church of the love that uh, God's love, agape love. And that's actually not true Um, in uh, John when John is telling us that um, men loved the darkness more than the light. Humanity, our love of darkness, the word that's used there is agape. Our love of sin, evil, our natural state is unconditional. And God comes in and breaks that and reverses that unconditional love. But being that this love is from the Spirit, an unconditional, supernatural, godly love Does that describe you? And now I would consider myself a loving person, but usually that love is conditional. You know, if you're nice to me, if we have a good connection, oh man, I'm going to love you day in and day out. Most of the time with strangers, um, super easy just to love on them. But am I loving behind closed doors? when I'm talking about people when they aren't there? Am I loving uh, in every aspect of my personality? Sometimes I'm not brave enough to step out and love the unlovable, the the people that my peers have deemed um, bad or uh, not worthy of love or a waste of time. Um, You know, maybe it's not people in your close circle, maybe it's people out there that you'd never have a face-to-face to, but what if you did? What if that politician that you just can't stand, what if you ran into them at the airport? What about that athlete that seems to disrespect the values that your fathers fought for? What about that celebrity that slams the church, slams Jesus every time they get? You know, God says that the spirit that we've been given is an unconditional love, that we are to love everybody, especially the household of God, but we are to love everybody. And so when we have the opportunity to sit down, maybe it's for an hour, maybe it's for two minutes with somebody that differs, somebody that maybe in their mind they hate 
Christians. They hate Jesus. They hate you. You know, our lives should be marked by love. I think that just as Paul tells Timothy to rekindle that gift, you know, we need to rekindle this dependence on the Spirit so that that love continues to grow and to think not of necessarily us loving people, Spencer loving people, but God loving people through Spencer, God loving people through you. What does that look like? Because we all could answer, how would God love this person? We'd be like, oh, clearly he would love them perfectly. Clearly he would love them unconditionally. There's no sin that would separate his love from them. Is that the same love that we're loving with? Is that the same love that he's flowing through us? Paul tells Timothy that we've been given a spirit not of fear, but of power of love and sound judgment. Uh, we've been talking about, um, Zach's been talking about, I should say, uh, opinions, beliefs, and convictions. Uh, we talked about that at home group a little bit. And, um, you know, we as a people are very, not this church, but just humanity, uh, we are very quick to share our judgments. And the truth is, some of us were taught that if we allowed um, another position, the opposite position that we take, if we allowed them to make their argument, um, we might be swayed. So to shut down that conversation, not read those books, not engage in those uh, debates. And I think we are just far too quick to speak and far too slow to listen. But being brave, walking in the confidence of the Lord, bravery is afraid of no words. Let's have that conversation. Let's talk about those things. And I want to, um, let me back up. I would say from the experience that I have when someone's listening to me with this spirit, making sound judgment, maybe correcting me, maybe encouraging me. But every time those conversations happened, I felt heard. Have you guys ever had a conversation where you're like, this guy is just not listening to me? I'm saying, you know, he's sitting there quietly, but it just seems like everything is just going in one ear and out the other. How I used to listen to my mom. Um, but do the people you talk to feel heard. And as bravery hears, as the spirit of sound judgment hears, and after it hears, it's powerfully and lovingly discerning. It's not that we accept any position. It's that we make a sound judgment from a position of love and a position of God's power. I think that if we let that fear creep into our hearts, at that point, listening becomes almost impossible. If we allow the fears of someone's position, maybe we're thinking down the road of the repercussions of that position. Maybe we're thinking of where else does that lead to if you believe this. But if you're able to sit there and have them feel heard, 
from a position of love and a position of power. After that, that conversation opens up and you're able to make sound judgments because you're able to debate with them. You're able to um, disagree with them, but still have that dialogue and you guys can then dance and spar and maybe no one leaves their position after that conversation, but there's no animosity. There's no um, fear on either side because you were able to make that judgment in a loving and powerful and sound way. So I've been thinking about this verse. What does that look like for me? Paul tells Timothy to rekindle the gift that he's been given, that he has. Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. Um, We are not pastors in Ephesus. What does God have for you to do? Who has God created you to be? You know, and I think this lesson is so precious for the church right now, not only because uh, we're saying goodbye to Christendom, but I think that this lesson is so important for us because I think that the church overall has done a really good job of numbing our hearts and numbing our brains to the fact that God wants to use you. The people that sit in pews, the people that sit in chairs, um, we are not there to support one guy to do ministry. If you read through 1 Corinthians, the church is a body, and that body has only one head, and that head is Jesus Christ, and the rest of us, elders, deacons, members, pew sitters, Jesus followers, make up the rest of that body. And so you, wherever you find yourself, God wants you to keep that gift kindled. You know, if you were asked, what are your spiritual gifts? A lot of people can't answer that. A lot of people don't know what their spiritual gifts are. We know that every person that follows Jesus is gifted. Uh, I believe that if you read Romans and Corinthians, that you are gifted in a supernatural way. How that manifests and plays out in your life is going to be different for each one of us, but you are uniquely and adequately gifted for the position that God has you in. So what does that look like? Is that a roaring fire in your life? Or is that kind of a gift that you whip out on Sundays? Is that a gift that you whip out at parties? Is that a gift that some people don't know that you have? If someone were to ask you, how has God gifted you? Who has God created you to be? Would you have an answer? Uh, A pastor uses the analogy of... um, gun collectors and soldiers. You can have a lot of guns. You can have nice guns. You can have old guns. They could all work perfectly. But using the gun, if it came down to a firefight, I'm looking at the soldier. He may have a gun that's duct taped together. He may have uh, you know, one gun, but he's using it. He's 
practicing that. And not that I'm advocating buying guns or soldiers or war or whatever, but if you have a gift, use it, exercise it, don't hang it up on the wall. But live your life in such a way that God is glorified through your giftings. Because God has created you and gifted you for February 3rd, 2019. He hasn't abandoned you this week. He hasn't left you here for a little R&R. You know, as much as we run away, we're never MIA. God has you. He's placed you. He's gifted you. He's equipped you. Maybe you look at your life and you're like, you know, uh, maybe I'm, that's not me. I don't feel super significant. Um, God really hasn't done miraculous through me. And uh, you may feel that way, but if you look through scripture, um, Priscilla and Aquila, they were tent makers. There's a couple of people, husband, wife, owned a business, and they were used tremendously in the life of the greatest missionary that Christianity has ever seen. Uh, the book of, book of Philippians talks about Lydia, who is the super wealthy businesswoman who used her property to house and uh, support the church in Philadelphia. And then the book of James points all the way back to the prophet Elijah, if you guys remember Elijah. And he says, James says of Elijah, that Elijah was a man just like us, just like you and me. And he prayed and stopped rain for three years. Now, I want it to rain, I want it to snow, so don't pray that God would stop that, stop that for three years. But if that's the power of prayer in the life of Elijah, and James says that's the exact same power of prayer that we can experience, what does that look like in our lives? Do we walk this life in a spirit of fear or in a spirit of bravery, in a spirit of power, of love, and of sound judgment? You know, if we don't meditate on these things, if we don't meditate on God's will and what he wants to bring to pass in our own lives, um, we're going to lose it. You know, we need to keep that kindled. We need to um, allow the spirit to uh, be prevalent, and um, we need to be dependent on it in our lives. Because as our culture makes the shift and the responsibility of the church comes back to the people, going out into our communities, in our jobs, in our schools, in the grocery stores. That's where the church is going to be doing its work. And we're going to be able to face the day. We're going to be able to face the devil. And not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of confidence. I think that Jesus... Um, you know, he, he tells us that he would not leave us or forsake us. And in the book of John, he tells us that he's leaving his helper. And um, I believe that's the spirit that Paul's talking about. And so for you guys, um, having received that spirit, walking in that spirit, 
uh, let's meditate on those things. Uh, we're going to close and have communion um, if uh, the worship team wants to come up. Um, and as you take the cup, as you take the bread, um, just meditate on, you know, partaking in the life of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and what does that mean for you? What does that mean for you in your job? What does that mean for you today? What does that mean for you in your family? What does that mean for you this coming week? And just pray that as you partake in those things, that you'd be refreshed, that you'd be rekindled, and that the Spirit of God would just overwhelm you supernaturally, overwhelm you in a way that maybe you've never felt before. Um, if you want prayer for that, maybe you don't know where to start. Maybe you're like, Spencer, I have no idea what you're talking about. I think you're crazy. Um, we would love to pray with you. Um, I know John in the back, myself, um, Craig is here. If anybody with a little lanyard, we would love to pray with you. And so just find one of us afterwards, and we'll just take a few minutes and just pray. But um, yeah, over the next few minutes, just meditate on these things and just um, ask God to speak to you in a new way. God, we thank you for today, and we just ask God that you would be glorified, that you would, um, Lord, magnify yourself, that we would see that um, you are uh, ferocious as a lion, but that you are good, that you are not safe, but that you are good, and that the spirit that you have given us isn't one of timidity, isn't one of fear, isn't one of safety and security, but it is one of power. It is one of love. It is one of sound judgment, and that we would be brave in the face of adversity, that we'd be brave in the face of a changing culture, that we would be brave in the face of our enemies, and that you would be glorified through it all. We pray this in your name. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.